Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited about the guests that we have today from Startup Nation. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, exiting. I mean, all the good stuff that we like to hear, some of the issues about scaling on agriculture tech, and then also the, the, the things that come with it when you are raising money as well. But I think that we're going to find, you know, the interview today very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Omar Davidi. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So originally from Israel. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, Israel is great. Uh, born and raised. You know, the, the ability, it's, even though it's a tiny country, you get to see a lot and you get to experience different people. Be part of the army, which is also, you know, part of life in a way. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a while. I mean, the army is it's it's incredible discipline that uh, that it gives you guys uh, over there. I mean, what, what what did you get out of your experience with the army there? I, I think it's actually an interesting part of also in 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 the reason Israeli is becoming some sort of a you know a high tech hub. I think the fact that you are brought when you're pretty young like 18 years old, uh, to an environment where no one asks you anything. I mean, especially at the beginning, you you build this discipline, you learn that there are different things, and it's not the soft and a comfortable environment that at least I had, you know, at home. Uh, and then you also get to experience connection with different people that usually you might not have experienced if you were just in your own bubble, you know, in a certain area. So I think this combination and then, of course, the ability to work with the most advanced technology in the world in some aspects, uh, just open minds to, to what can be achieved. Now, software, you know, on the engineering side, what really sparked the interest towards that? Because that's same what you ended up studying too. So I think since, since I remember myself, I used to take apart, you know, computers and try to understand how they work. I remember this day of which I opened, I think, three or four different computers trying to look at the CPU and, and you know, broke some of those tiny pins that needs to go in. Uh, and I remember my mother being very pissed and the fact that they just ruined four computers. Um, and, 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 and I guess it developed in a way. So, you know, I was trying to figure out how those things work. I became some sort of a geek. Uh, a very young age and even before i finished high school i actually worked in one of the high tech companies focusing on knowledge management and, and some other things so it was always probably a passion of mine um and yeah it's a big part of my life and also a passion in starting companies because i mean you started so many i was like losing count so let's go ahead with uh, talking about the first company how did the uh, the idea come about and what was that company so uh, many years ago, I was involved with some, you know, investors coming from the real estate space and looking to invest more into the technology space. And I find myself acting as some sort of a, you know, a person doing some sort of a due diligence or giving some more access or knowledge into those group of investors to understand the technology better and what's challenging and so on. Uh, and while I was doing it, I, you know, I was focusing on the tech companies, but they have experienced some other opportunities in different domains. And, and one of the things that came up is, 
um, you know, uh, recycling of energy and like different challenges and opportunities that can come up in those uh, things. Uh, and I guess, you know, I was quite keen into business opportunities in general. And I find myself actually diving into a space that I didn't know much about and, and found the first company, um, spanned two, a little bit more than two years, uh, brought it to some sort of a success, sold it and, and moved forward. So it was like, you know, an opportunity that comes and you just want to take it. And I guess that that gave you as well the full visibility into how the full cycle of a company, you know, really works. No? So what kind of visibility did that give you? So I think there are a lot of things that you learn, you know, doing things hands on that are not necessarily can be taught or at least can be taught to a certain point. But once you experience it, you learn that, you know, real life is a, is, is a bit different and the pressure and like the other drivers that affects your decision making. Uh, but I think it also gives you the power that even though I was quite young when I first, you know, got into, let's call it the business um, uh, world, uh, a lot can be achieved. It's a question of attitude. It's a question of, you know, managing risks. Uh, it's a question of bringing the right people that can support you in the areas that you don't have enough strength or experience. Um, and I think it helps to build up to to success in a way. Or, or even if failure, at least you learn from this failure. So. Now, now, in your case, one thing that is incredible is, I mean, companies that you've started, they're like so different in nature in terms of the segment. I mean, you just jump from one segment to the rest, to the next. I mean, how are you able to do that? Because typically the, the, the learning curve is pretty, pretty high. I mean, typically you would see people that have had, you know, so many years invested into really understanding things, right? You just jump. How do you do that? Well, so... I, I think, you know, there are probably smarter people than me dealing with, you know, super sophisticated stuff. I think I was always keen to find, and, and I did actually this process because I was asking myself the same question, like what passionate me in terms of deciding what I want to do and so on. I think looking into broken markets where technology can make a big difference and with my experience with technology and my ability to be hands-on and to try and get some sort of a sense of the problem or a sense of potential solutions uh, is, is what led me. And I guess the other part is that I don't like to miss an opportunity. So if something comes up and it's interesting enough, let's play with the problem. Let's see where it goes. And in many cases, it didn't go, you know, and, and I just stopped after spending a few months. But in some of those cases that you mentioned, uh, one thing led to the other, and I find myself learning a new, a new uh, uh, market, uh, a new challenge. And again, it's about bringing the people who are more familiar with me that, with, with the problem and can help you know, guide how a solution should look like. So the next company that you did, you didn't really raise money for it, but uh, it sounds like uh, you were at it for about three years or so. And you ended up also doing a transaction. So typically, I mean, I guess the question there is, what were you guys doing? And what have you learned too? Because it sounds like here you go, two companies for two exits. Like what have you learned around timing when doing an exit? Um, you know, it's, it's sometimes you feel like if you've done something once or twice, then suddenly you have all the answers and you know how it works. I can tell you that, Every time I look back and I see mistakes that I could probably avoid, you know, thinking about them. But I think timing is, is probably a big thing. I mean, when we look at the history of, you know, some companies that succeeded and you look back, 
sometimes you find companies that were trying to do exactly the, th- the same. Uh, in some cases, you can identify, you know, small things that they did differently. But in many cases, it's about timing and the ability of the market to, to accept some sort of a solution and so on. And I think that especially now when we see the market, you know, changes quite a lot. I mean, once it was COVID, now it's the financial markets, then it's a war. So a lot of things happening in the world. And I think it's about, um, you know, working with uh, um, timing in mind. So if you have something you want to achieve, try to pursue it as fast as possible. And you don't know how the world's going to look like six months from now or four months from now. Um, so I think it's about getting to a point that you say, okay, I, I brought the company to a point that probably others can take it to further or it got to some sort of a proof of concept, solid unit economics. Now there are probably smarter and, and better people to take it from here. And then you just choose, like look at the options and say, okay, should I be here? Can I achieve more? Or what can the company achieve more? Or should I focus for, you know, on, on the next challenge? Um, and now I'm in the next challenge. <laughs> and we'll talk about the next challenge in just a little bit. But as the saying goes, you either succeed or you learn. Your next company was Squad Technologies, and the outcome was not the one that you had hoped for. So at what point do you realize it's time to pull the plug? What does that thought process look like? I'm sure it's painful. And uh, what did you take with you from this experience? Um, so maybe I'll start from the, 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 the latter question. I think what I, I've taken from this experience is the ability to kill ideas fast. So one of the feedbacks, the main feedbacks that I have for the process in, in squad was that it took us, me and my co-founders, eight months to decide that we don't, that we want to drop this idea. Uh, and the problem was that we spent a lot of time with senior management to get a better understanding of the problems and explore the potential solution. And we got, you know, such a good feedback. Uh, and we were like on the top of the wall saying, okay, we just nailed it. We understand exactly what needs to be ha- to happen. And it took us a few months until we got down to the, you know, to the, to the field level, in a way, I would say, uh, to get the real experience of what's happening. Because sometimes the senior management might have a perception of how things are running in their business, but in practicality, it's not really the case. And some of the assumptions that we've made in the early days just started to fall. Uh, And I remember I had this chat with my co-founder back then, I think it was after four months, and he was like, I don't think our assumptions hold enough. And then we stopped and we said, okay, we need to have like a group of assumptions, let's say six, 10 assumptions. And as long as X amount of those assumptions holds, we continue. But if those assumptions falls, we're out. And it's not about emotions. It's not about, you know, the baby that we brought together of those kind of things, putting emotions aside. And when that happened, we just decided we're out. Um, I think it's, you know, like, Many different things that you need to do sometimes in the business world, like laying off people is never nice, but after you do it several times and you understand that's what the business needs, uh, it, it doesn't become easier, but it, it makes more sense. And I think also here, uh, once once you have this experience saying, okay, yeah, I did spend eight months, maybe I learned, I probably could have learned in three months what I've spent just eight months on, so it's not like it's all positive. But spending more time on something that I don't think holds anymore wouldn't make it better. So just move on. That's it. Now, one door closes, another one opens. And in this case, it was a rocket ship that opened. So uh, how did you come across you know, this uh, next idea? 
with Be Hero and and why do you thought why why did you think you know that it made sense to pursue? So I, I think in general, you know, when we when we closed squad and we decided to look at something else, the the challenge was to experience uh, you know problems or to experience industries that might require solutions, uh, and it's always about you know our processes of doing ideation of different things. Usually you want to encounter the problem or you want to be in a market that you learn about the problem for many years. Uh, we joined um, a program in, in IDC, uh, Herzliya, one of the universities in, in Herzliya that was building some sort of a singularity university concept, trying to bring people from different domains that already have some sort of an experience uh, in the outside world and then put them in a room and see if they can figure out and deal with some significant challenges. And one of the people that I've met in this program was Itai Kanot, uh, who is one of the co-founders of Bee Hero, and he's a second-generation commercial beekeeper. So his, his family owns one of the largest bee farms in Israel, and he was born and raised into beekeeping. Um, you know, most of us heard about colony collapse disorder and the fact that bees are dying. So it you know, one, one thing led to another, and I found myself diving into the beekeeping world with some other team members that were looking into the same issue and trying to figure out whether technology make a difference uh, in this world. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then once uh, you had an idea there, you know, and you thought it could make a difference, it could make a difference, you know, in, in what you guys are up to. What were the next steps that you decided to, to take here? So unlike the, you know, squad that we just talked about, I think it was about getting out to the field immediately. Like, okay, technology in most cases can, can be built. Uh, there's a question about unit economics. There's a big question about the ability to scale, but you want to experience the problem. You want to see it in your eyes. And and we spend a lot of time out there in the field speaking with, uh, at the beginning, beekeepers. So one aspect was trying to learn more about beekeepers' challenges in dealing with the you know changing environment, uh, with the industrialization of agriculture and how it affects you know mortality rates of bees, unit economics of beekeepers, and so on. So that was one angle. 
The second angle was to start and play with data. So, you know, we, we used our academic hat to try and get some collaboration with big companies and try to figure out what they've been studying about bees and colony collapse disorder. And we've learned that everyone used very sophisticated hardware components you know, to collect data, and, and, and we need to think of a different approach because we're looking to build a business. We're not just trying to make research. So we started to play with, with sensors, like, you know, the off-the-shelf, easiest, simplest way to just start and collect data. So the more time we collect data, we can later on sense the, the feel for it and see whether collecting data from inside hives can actually say something about the hive because sometimes that's not that's not the case. Uh, and the third part was trying to understand why hive monitoring companies that we've seen so far didn't get to the scale that, you know, we are even looking at the problem. Like colony collapse disorder was not something new five years ago. It was probably 10 years before that we, we, we introduced, uh, it was introduced to the world, but we didn't see a lot of hive monitoring companies that are focusing on the commercial domain, the majority of hives, most of them have shifted towards the hobbyist beekeepers. And there was a big question marks whether you can actually build a scalable company that dealing with hive monitoring. Uh, and I think the outcome of those three things that we've been doing since the early days of Bee Hero led us to focus on pollination optimization and how we can utilize technology and work closely with beekeepers but not only help beekeepers to deal with their challenges, but also introduce different concepts of pollination that will allow you know, 70, 75% of the crop growers um, to pollinate better and increase outputs. And obviously, you know, the rest is history. Um, what, what, for the people that are listening to really understand it, what ended up being the, um, basically the business model of Bee Hero? How do you guys make money? So Bee Hero is actually selling precision pollination as a service. Uh, so if you are growing a certain crop that requires bee pollination, which again is approximately 70, 75% of the crops out there, you need to bring bees to introduce bees uh, during the bloom season. Uh, and those hives that are being brought on tracks to the field might pollinate millions or tens of millions of flowers a day, or they might pollinate zero flowers a day. It depends on the quality and the strength and the welfare of bees. Um, so we focus on how can we ensure that they will pollinate those tens of millions of flowers a day and you get a full coverage because a flower that is not pollinated will just dry and fall. A flower that was pollinated is an opportunity. Now you need to use irrigation smart, you need to use nutrient smart and other things that has been have been optimized over the years in order to achieve the, the maximum outputs possible. So we are selling precision pollination as a service. And then behind the scene, we are establishing partnership with commercial beekeepers to support their efforts to introduce better hives. So we work with both players. And for something like this, I mean, you guys have, you know, raised a, a bit of capital to, to support the operation. How much capital have you guys raised to date? So until today, we've raised approximately $64 million uh, in uh, three funding rounds. So we've uh, announced our Series B approximately six months ago. Um, and uh, yeah. And what is the process like for raising money for Anactic? I'm sure it's a little bit different than from the traditional SaaS you know, type of company. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm originally coming from the cybersecurity space, and and a lot is different. Uh, I know that um, you know in the early days of Be Hero, it was it was extremely challenging. So you know, you come up with this 
concept or idea on a field that most people don't even know about and you don't have any traction in the early days and you you're trying to get you know investors to believe in what you're building uh and and it's quite hard because everyone is afraid of the Arctic space. Can you actually build scalable companies in the Arctic space? Uh, we haven't seen a lot of exits. I mean, again, going five years ago, four years ago, haven't seen a lot of exits in this space. So there's a lot of question marks of whether you know investors want to take their money and invest in something that they're not well familiar with. And and the early days was was were quite tough. I mean, I, I remember you know for the seed stage. We, we it felt like we spit blood, you know, in a way. And we actually had a date on the wall that we say, okay, if we cannot raise money by that date, it's it's over. I mean, m- maybe we have something, but we need to have those resources. And after we raised this money and we got some good strategic investors to join and we started to feel more traction and to see some, some more, you know, revenues, then the discussion changes. Now it's about, you know, unit economics and about how fast can you scale um, versus, is there something interesting here or not? Or can you overcome some of those technological challenges that you need to do? Um, and and I definitely see you know a better experience going through Series A and later on Series B, bringing more strategic investors to help and to push forward the company. But yeah, the early stage for an Arctic company is, I believe, one of the most challenging parts. Now, in Arctic, why is it so complicated when it comes to scale? What are some of the issues, you know, that uh, typically founders would encounter and perhaps, you know, some of the ones that you guys have encountered through? Um, so it, it, it's a question of, the, you know, the value proposition and the validation. So, uh, I mean, think of a grower. Uh, let's say you're growing, I don't know, citrus, and you speak to different companies that, you know, tells you how they're going to help you to increase yields or help you to do, something eventually you want to make sure how much money does this brings in uh, and you cannot try everything at the same time so you're going to pick few and you're going to run some of those experiments and if the value proposition is increasing yields then how many years you want to see um, consecutively that will show you this increase in yields and can you actually uh, be confident that this increase in yields is a result of this specific solution. And and one of the things that I, I had the privilege is to meet with one of the probably the most successful farmers in the world and, and to talk about, you know, the strategy and the value proposition. And he told me that, you know, companies are coming and say, okay, I've I've worked with, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you farmers that I worked with and they will tell you how well the, you know, my solution is and how they see the value. And that's going to be some sort of, you know, evangelist that, to support the solution. But then I said, yeah, you probably go to 10 growers, you're running experiments, five of them will see better yields because five of them would just see higher yields. This is how it goes. And some of them, maybe three of them will be convinced that you're the reason of, of the yield increase. And suddenly you have three evangelists, but I don't trust it. I mean, I want to be able to uh, have my own confidence that the solution that you're providing is actually as a result. So I think a lot of companies are struggling in the cycles and, and there's a seasonality. So it's not like you can do things on a monthly basis. And then you find yourself spending sometimes two or three years to move from let's call it the proof of concept to commercialize solution and then to scale it. Uh, and for startups, two or three years, it's, you know, it's sometimes it's a lifetime. Um, I think that one of the things that we took from those, those meetings and, and trying to, to do a bit differently, I would say, is to 
to focus on things that can be validated on the spot. So if we want to talk about the accuracy of the system, we want to be able to show, you know, on a screen, okay, this is the status of this specific hive. That's what's happening in this hive. Let's open the hive together and see inside. And this is something that can be validated on the spot, and it helps you to build the credibility that at least you know what you're doing. Now there's a question how it's going to support me and so on. So maybe you're not trying to, uh, you know, trying to monetize your solution in the best way possible, but you're also taking into consideration that you, you, you need to scale. You need to scale. It will help you to improve. It will help you to show the value on a, on a broader uh, sample set, and then you can start and, and maybe build premium models or different ways to monetize those solutions in a more efficient way. So as we're thinking about scale too, I'm thinking about team. I mean, how, how how many people do you guys have right now in the company? So we're getting close to 60 people now uh, in the company, uh, which feels a lot. Uh, but I guess compared to uh, revenues, we're still, still kind of a thin company. So uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> now, now, in that case, I mean, you have the 60 plus spread across six different time zones. So how do you build culture like that? You know, I'm sure that, you know, it's, it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy. I think that one of my main challenges, like my personal challenges in, in Be Hero, is the fact that we're spread across six time zones, as you mentioned, and we have people coming from different cultures, speaking different languages, uh, and miscommunication is miscommunication and time zone difference are probably the, the biggest barriers uh, for some of the projects or some of the things that we're trying to push forward. Uh, there are also, you know, some advantages. So, you know, a salesperson goes to sleep and the next morning then they have a solution because someone walked all night or the morning in order to solve it. But I think when it comes to culture, uh, it's about trying to identify the maximum group of values that brought people to work in the company. So everyone that joined Bee Hero cares about the environment, care about bees, want to see how you know technology can make a difference in this kind of an old-fashioned industry. Uh, and I think as long as you focus on those core joint values, it's easier to create this you know joint culture and, and bonding. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we've solved it. I probably have more questions than answers on this topic, but at least those are the things that we focus on in, in Bee Hero. So imagine you go to sleep tonight, Omer, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Be Hero is fully realized. What does that world look like? So we have approximately 100 million hives in the world that are responsible for most of the food production in the world. I mean, I, I want to see how technology is introduced to all those hives, by the way, whether it's Be Hero or other companies. I want to make sure that we create sustainable uh, food production system uh, that we can ensure that bees are being used in food production for pollination, but they're also being taken care of. Um, I think that over the last many years, we've managed to show how we can optimize food production. Uh, but I think we did it by mortgaging our children and grandchildren's future, basically taking resources from the future and using them now. And, and, and I think that's not fair. I mean, if you want to simplify, it's just not fair. We need to be able to create a sustainable food system that can support the growing population. Um, and, and I'm sure that addressing the bee problem is a significant part of it. It's not the only part of it, but it's a significant part of it. So if I was to put you now, you know, let's talk about the past. If I was to put you now into a time machine, 
and bring you back in time, back in time to that moment when, you know, you were thinking about starting your first business. If you could go back in time and have a chat with that younger Omer and be able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I think it's about focusing on the people that you walk with in the beginning. I think that we tend to walk with those that believe in what we do. And those will always try to give us the confidence that we're on the right track, whether because they are, you know, friends and families trying to support our efforts, whether they're like extremely positive people that thinks that everything can be achieved. I think I would focus a lot more on those that told me why that will not work. And, and you know, you, you never want to be in a place where people are telling you why the things you're doing and investing your life in wouldn't work. But those are the people that taught us the most and made us better. Um, and, and even in Be Hero, I feel like in the early days, we were trying to, you know, push away those that explain why it wouldn't work. Like, um, let, let's work with those who believe in us. Um, so I think that would probably be the biggest advice or something that I would do differently. Um, and I'm not sure I, I will the next time, but I, it's definitely something that I want to focus more on uh, in terms of just getting better faster. Amazing. Well, Omer, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to, to do so? Uh, so first of all, Be Hero website. So it's Be Hero, as you can see here, uh, .io, uh, and you can contact us. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, so feel free to reach out. I'm not as responsive on LinkedIn, but uh, I'll, I'll try to do my best. Uh, and uh, yeah, would love to connect with people who uh, can relate to our vision and our mission. Amazing. Well, hey, Omar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much and keep up the great work. It's, it's exciting to hear about your stories. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.